Of the more than 70 Woodhouse novels that I have read, a favorite is titled Much Obliged Jeeves. In it, the amiable but cloth-headed Bertram Wooster, whose knowledge of British government, as of everything else, is a bit thin, asks a friend about a particular public figure, Lord Roderick Spode. The friend says, Spode is a silver-tongued orator who has the sort of gift of gab that gets people elected to Parliament. To which Wooster asks, then why doesn't Spode get himself a seat in the House of Commons? Wooster's friend says, he can't, you poor chump, he's a lord. Wooster, they don't allow lords in. Friend, no, they don't. To which Wooster says, I see, rather impressed by this proof that the House of Commons drew the line somewhere. <laughs> the House of Commons would not let in our third winner of a 2016 Bradley Prize. He is a lord having been knighted by Her Majesty the Queen in 2005 and made a life peer, he has sat in the House of Lords since 2009. Now, any damn fool can be a lord and a number of damn fools are. <laughs> Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs is, however, special. The author of 25 books, a teacher at many prestigious universities, the recipient of innumerable honors, he is one of the world's most distinguished and accomplished religious leaders. He is an unmistakable and indispensable voice insisting on cultural and political accommodations of the spiritual dimension of life. And that is not all. It is a melancholy fact that seven decades after the end of the Holocaust, he must now lead other people of goodwill and urgent memories against the resurgence of anti-Semitism in Europe and elsewhere. It is one of the perverse wonders of contemporary Europe that there can be anti-Semitism without Jews and Christian anti-Semitism without Christianity. And it might be tragically true that anti-Semitism was the most durable and successful ideology of the blood-soaked 20th century. If the 20th century, 21st century is to be different, this will be in part because of leaders like our third 2016 Bradley Prize winner, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. I don't think I ever came across a figure in British society who had the rare combination of intellectual and pedagogical gifts that Jonathan had. It's difficult to place Rabbi Sachs in one category. You cannot say he's a Jewish voice only or he's a liberal intellectual only. I think the power of Sachs is that he transcends these categories. Of course, he's a great rabbi, he's a great Jewish scholar, that's his base. But from that base, you can see him growing. Rabbi Sachs has lived a purpose-driven life. In other words, he was not born a rabbi. He came to it by exploration. He also has a very uncanny knack of getting into what are the, the most difficult issues of the day, simplifying them, and coming up not just with analysis, but solutions. Sometimes, as in the, the current crisis that a lot of the world is in with radical Islamist terrorism, it is the direct communication of religious leaders 
to Muslim religious leaders that I think has as much hope as anything we've done of getting beyond the conflict into the rediscovering our common heritage. I can't think of anybody who has done that as effectively as Rabbi Sachs. I was honored and delighted that my wife and my family received him in our home in Bethesda in Washington, D.C. What I saw at that breakfast meeting was the chief rabbi in discussion with the senior rabbi of Washington, with the bishop of Washington, and a great Shinto scholar, Dr. Handa, who was also my guest that day. And believe me, anyone who thinks they have the exclusive right to religion should have seen the chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, talking to the Shinto priest and discovering how much there was common between the Abrahamic and the non-Abrahamic faiths. He's able to reach out across the boundaries of faith and culture, connect with other people, and bring them to a sense of common and shared values and purpose. And this is not just a rare gift, it's something that is essential if the world today is to get over its, its problems and its challenges, which really originate in many ways from using religion as a source of extremism rather than as a source of love and compassion. He's a real intellectual, but he's got a wonderful sense of humor, which may just mean that I find that, generally speaking, he laughs at my jokes. This is how we judge a good sense of humor. He has contributed to the interpretation of religion today, post 9-11 world, and its interaction with other faiths. So he's moved beyond his own boundaries, as it were. And in that sense, he's been very adventurous and innovative. And I think that is the finest interpretation of the charter that defines the Bradley Prize. Rabbi Sachs is uniquely deserving of the Bradley Prize because in his writings, taking religious values and applying them to the world, he's been a very effective advocate for freedom. In an era of globalization where the world has been pushed together across the boundaries of faith and culture and race and nation, he has given us a paradigm, a framework for peaceful coexistence, which is the only way a world that is coming together can function. And that's why for the Bradley Prize, he is about the perfect recipient. We are pleased to present the 2016 Bradley Prize to Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. Beloved friends, I'm touched, moved, and humbled by this award from a great institution dedicated to a noble cause. I'm very touched by George's introduction about the House of Lords. <laughs> Having been a congregational rabbi for many decades, people sometimes ask me, which do I prefer, the House of the Lord or the House of Lords? I say, given the choice, always choose the house of the Lord because in the house of 
the Lord, only the rabbi gives the sermon. In the House of Lords, everyone does. But there is a special atmosphere in the House of Lords, a wonderful collegial atmosphere. I still haven't learned to negotiate the Palace of Westminster. And one official said to me one day, can I help you, my lord? You look like one of the lost sheep of Israel. <laughs> I said, I am, and I'm supposed to be their shepherd. <laughs> but I cannot thank you enough for this extraordinary award, which Elaine and I cherish. And I also thank you for the discipline you've introduced, because you've given me precisely eight minutes in which to express my thanks. This reminds me of the occasion when George Bernard Shaw was invited to give a talk about English literature. How long do I have? He said, eight minutes, came back the reply. Bernard Shaw said, how am I supposed to say everything I know about English literature in eight minutes? Back came the reply, speak very slowly. <laughs> So speaking very slowly, uh, my mind goes back to the first time I set foot in Washington. It was the summer of 1968. I was a student traveling around America on a Greyhound bus. I arrived at dawn on a cloudless day, and for the next three hours, I walked around the mall, awed by the great monuments to Lincoln, Roosevelt, and Jefferson. What fascinated me was that each came with its own text, the Lincoln Memorial with the Gettysburg Address on one side and on the other, the second inaugural, and so on with the others. And I suddenly realized that American memorials are not just there to be seen, they're there to be read. Now, it's the exact opposite in London. Go to Parliament Square and you will see that the memorial to David Lloyd George consists of precisely three words, David Lloyd George. <laughs> Benjamin Disraeli gets two, Benjamin and Disraeli. And as for Churchill, he gets just one, Churchill. Why the difference? Because England is a traditional society where things are there because they're there. Whereas the United States is that rare phenomenon, a covenant society. Covenant societies represent conscious new beginnings. They're founded on an idea. They are dedicated to a proposition. They have a story. And they make sure no one forgets the story, which is why they inscribe it on monuments and teach it to their children. The reason this resonated with me is that the first ever covenant society was Israel of the Bible. Actually, it's the same story in both cases. Israel's story is about the exodus from Egypt and from a tyrannical pharaoh and a journey that took them through the Red Sea. For Egypt, read England. For Pharaoh, read George III. And for the Red Sea, read the Atlantic. And you have the American story, which makes your generosity tonight in honoring two Brits, Andrew Roberts and myself, all the greater. Thank you for moving to freedom with the British from freedom from the British. I thank you again. But what has concerned me these past few years is the sense that we are beginning to forget the story. Believing instead that freedom is the default option in politics, that it just happens, that it's the norm, not the rare exception, that it delivers rights 
without responsibilities, and that once won, it lasts forever. These are all mistaken beliefs, doubly dangerous now that the threat to freedom is greater than at any other time in my lifetime. The events currently shaking the Middle East, Africa, and Asia may seem far away, but in a global age, nothing is far away. And whether the future is shaped by Russia or China or ISIS or Iran, it will not be democratic and it will not be free. Yet the danger is not primarily external. It never is. It comes from within. And it happens when we forget the story. The liberty we enjoy now was born in the 17th century through minds like those of Milton, John Locke, and Spinoza, and what they understood was that a free society is a moral achievement. They contrasted liberty, the freedom to do what we want, uh, the freedom to do what we ought, with license, the freedom to do what we want. They knew that freedom requires strong institutions, bigger than the individual, but smaller than the state. Marriages, families, communities, and voluntary groups where we learn the art of association that Tocqueville memorably called the apprenticeship of liberty. Today, as Charles Murray has so powerfully documented in Coming Apart, many of those institutions are in disarray, especially among the groups that need them most. And when there is nothing between the individual and the, and the state, in hard times, you get the politics of anger, which we have been seeing in Europe in the rise of the far right and the far left, the far right seeking a return to a golden age that never was, and the far left pursuing a utopian future that will never be. And if I'm not wholly mistaken, and if I have been listening tonight, there may be something of the politics of anger even in America today. One danger signal is the return of anti-Semitism within living memory of the Holocaust. And I say this not because I'm Jewish, but because the hate that begins with Jews never ends with Jews. Today, the enemies of freedom focus their attack on two targets, the United States and Israel. The United States, because it is the supreme embodiment of freedom in the modern world, and Israel, because it's the most successful experiment in freedom in the Middle East. And we see this assault in the BDS anti-Israel campaign on university campuses. Ostensibly, it's about human rights. But in fact, it is about denying the first principle of justice, Audi alteram partem, here the other side. What the campaigners are doing is ensuring that the case for Israel cannot be heard. And that is only the beginning. Today in universities, there is an attempt to create safe spaces. That is, places that exclude the voices with which we disagree. Freedom is not a safe space. It is where we take the risk of making space for the people not like us. That takes moral courage. Liberty demands no less. This unique freedom is the contribution of the Judeo-Christian heritage to the West. It was built on truths that 
begging Thomas Jefferson's forgiveness are not self-evident, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that governments derive their authority from the consent of the governed, that society is formed by social covenant and sustained by the collective responsibility of we the people. Freedom of this kind never emerged anywhere else. It was achieved only through struggle and pain, and we forget this at our peril. Moses knew this. Even before the Israelites left Egypt, he had already commanded them to teach the story to their children every year until the end of time. Not just tell it, but relive it, eating the unleavened bread of affliction and the bitter herbs of slavery so that they would never forget what the loss of freedom tastes like. Memory is the guardian of liberty. What I saw on that dawn walk in Washington 48 years ago was something of that faith engraved in stone on the memorials of America's heroes of liberty. A story handed on from generation to generation, never finally finished, never without its risks and failures, but a dream capable of inspiring us still with its vision of a world where human dignity does not depend on color, class, or creed, where each of us has a place of honor because we have learned to honor those not like us. Today, as large swathes of the world descend into a Hobbesian state of nature where life is nasty, brutish, and short, where the best lack all conviction and the worst are full of passionate intensity, we must stand together. Christian and Jew, America and Israel, defenders of liberty of all faiths and none to teach the story to our children of how freedom was won against seemingly impossible odds and how it needs to be fought for in every generation. We need to renew the covenant that brought freedom to people fleeing from oppression, reminding ourselves of the monumental truth written in the lines of Jewish and American history, that no force on earth can defeat those for whom freedom is engraved on their hearts. In that ongoing story, the Bradley Foundation plays a vital role. I salute you and thank you. May all you do be blessed.